welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. This is a podcast where we talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality. From sailing around the world to launching a thriving business or just standing up for what you believe in, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. With your host, journalist Shelby Stanger. This is episode six with Allison Teal of Allison Adventures, also called the Oprah of Adventures. This episode is brought to you by Graced by Grit. The women's fitness company was founded to help empower women cultivate their grit to find their grace. I love their name and I love their yoga and running pants. Not only do they make my booty look good, which is always important, but they offer classic styles and flattering fits made from the highest quality materials. They always look good on. Go to gracedbygrit.com and check them out. And when you enter the code WILDIDEAS, you'll get 20% off your first order. This episode was also brought to you by Surf Diva. The original all-women surf school has been teaching group, private, all-women, and co-ed lessons at their stunning San Diego location for over 20 years. I've taught surf lessons there for years and seen hundreds of men and women come through, learn to ride waves, and it literally changes their lives. Go to surfdiva.com or give them a call. And when you book a lesson in San Diego and mention this show or the code WILDIDEAS, you'll get a $10 gift card to use towards your next lesson or in their store. Today's guest has been called the Oprah of Adventures and the female Indiana Jones by Time Magazine. Allison Teal of Allison Adventures is a remarkable young woman from the big island of Hawaii. She grew up with an incredible upbringing. Her dad was an early photographer for brands like National Geographic, Patagonia, and Columbia, and her mom was one of the first yoga teachers. Allison grew up with an incredibly untraditional upbringing. She traveled all around the world, hiked the Himalayas at age seven. She rode camels, and all she wanted to do was go to school while, while all of us just wanted to be like her. Allison ended up going to film school, and she started making movies right after college, and then she ended up getting invited to be on the show Naked and Afraid. That's right. She went absolutely butt naked on an island with one dude, and not only did she survive for 21 days, but she won the whole dang show. Allison talks about how she did it, and then she shares with us some interesting views about magic, about fear, about my favorite sport, surfing, about pollution, and how anyone with a wild idea can make whatever they want happen. I get a little excited during the interview, so excuse my excitement, but Allison's an incredible storyteller, and what I love about Allison is her whole life has been about having a wild idea worth living. So without further ado, let's welcome Allison Teal to the show. Welcome to the show, Allison Teal. I've heard so much about you. I've loved meeting you briefly, and I'm so excited to have you on. This show is all about wild ideas worth living. I mean, that's the name of the show, and your whole your whole life has been a wild idea worth living. So we couldn't be more excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. I love that you say aloha. Um, where are you right now? Are you on the big island? I am sitting in my home sweet grass shack. Uh, yeah, in South Kona on the big island. It's like very Robinson Crusoe. You can, can you hear the birds? They're all... I can hear them a little bit. It sounds beautiful there. You know, let's just start with that. Let's go right into the beginning from, I heard you talking to someone else about how you were born and you said you start, it started from a hot Bolivian night to a log cabin in Colorado. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yep. I was, I was a uh, created one hot night in Bolivia. So the parents say, um, I love that you know, you my parents know were... this and the, your parents have Isn't told that... you this. <laughs> 
I've never asked my parents that question. Oh, you should. I know I should, but I, I don't know. Anyway, let's keep going with you. This is about you, not me. Oh, well, well, get back to me on that one. I'm curious to know. Okay. Um, you know, my parents were extreme adventurers, actually more in ski in the mountains. And they traveled the world. They were extreme expeditioners on the cover of, you know, every magazine from Outside Magazine to Aspen Extreme magazines all over. And, you know, one day they decided, gosh, how awesome would it be? to be able to share this with someone <laughs> um, who's going to go away, you know, who isn't a client or somebody they're guiding on a trip. Um, they thought, wow, what if, what if we actually had a, a kid um, and we could raise her and share the world with her literally. And so I was born on the floor of a log cabin uh, in the mountains of Eldora, Colorado, above Boulder that my dad actually built by hand. And it was in a blizzard and it's funny because they, you know, thought they raised a skier and I became a surfer uh, when I was about three months old. Mountain Bike Magazine assigned them a photojournalism assignment to come to the Big Island of Hawaii. For three months, they traveled in the first mountain on the first mountain bikes uh, with me in this little burly cart. I was a baby, pulling pulling me behind, singing me songs, and they came across this beautiful oceanfront property in Hawaii. And it had never been sold in the history of Hawaii. And they were kind of in the realm of like, oh my gosh, how cool would it be to move to Hawaii with no frozen pipes? Um, you know, no, not shoveling snow every day, yeah. but little did they know, um, they were getting into a pretty big masterpiece here. Uh, they ended up buying this piece of property. Um, it, again, it had Queen Lily Okalani on the deed, and we were just this kind of pumpkin granola family, as I call it, this hippie family. And they just fell in love with us, the Hawaiian family, and decided to sell it to us. And it it had nothing. It was full of scorpions and centipedes and thorn bushes. And, you know, this was a few decades ago. And over my lifetime, um, with the incredible skills of my MacGyver papa, we've built this very Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson. Um, I think it's the only yoga, it's the only oceanfront yoga retreat center, uh, retreat center period in Hawaii. Um, and so we have people come here now to get to experience, you know, living in nature, learning about sustainability, learning yoga from my mom and adventure with me. And that's just kind of one of the many coconut hats that I wear is is being, you know, the daughter here and, and the adventurer. It's a pretty special spot. You'll have to come. You'll have to, it, it's like the kind of one of the last primitive fishing villages in the world. Uh, we still, you know, have the, the dolphin and the whales come in and the fishing boats go out. And it's real Hawaii. You know, I saw Moana, the video, and I was like, wow, that's really what it was like growing up, you know? Allison, you do not have to pull my arm very hard to get me to come to the big island of Hawaii. We, we definitely want to move there. So we need to talk about that um, as well. But... But let's go back to your parents. First of all, your house sounds incredible, and I can hear the birds in the background. Hopefully the audience can hear that as well. I'm sitting in Southern California. It's wintertime. I just went surfing, um, which is great because we also live oceanfront oh. right now, and it's freezing. <laughs> but I did see a dolphin, so that was really cool. Um, so I love that we're on, we're on opposite sides of weather right now. Um, it's probably really warm there. It's freezing here. I'm in my bikini. Yep. <laughs> Awesome. I was in a full suit and I wish I'd had booties. I turned purple, but um, I'm not complaining. It was awesome. So your parents seem really interesting. Your dad was a photographer for really big brands and National Geographic. I think you said he worked for Patagonia and Columbia. And then you, you once told me, so your mom, you told me your mom's a famous yogi. And I remember when I met you, I had actually just done a yoga teacher training. And for those of you listening, yes, definitely roll your eyes. I totally used to make fun of yogis, but 
I love yoga. Yoga is awesome. I love how it makes me feel, not just my body, but especially my mind. And so I just want to know a little bit more about your parents, um, kind of their backgrounds and especially your mom. I mean, when I met you, you said, you're like, oh, you do yoga. You just did a yoga teacher training. I know. And you dropped the name of like the guy who founded yoga and he was your buddy growing up. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, to put it in a coconut shell, uh, yes, my dad was an extreme adventurer and he kind of was like, well, how can I sustain this and take my family along? And so they kind of put their heads together and founded their company called Yoga Adventure. So what they would do is they would take people around the world, um, leading them on yoga adventure trips. And at the same time, uh, we would have sponsorship from, yes, companies like Patagonia. My dad was their photographer for over like 20, 30 years. Um, and we'd go get the extreme shots for these magazines of either people's product or like I said, photo, you know, journalism assignments. And along the way, my mom, um, who's a huge yoga devotee would rope us into all these, you know, wild ashrams and we have to study yoga here. Let's go there. And, um, when I was about 11, maybe we went and lived with Patabi Joyce, um, who is, they say, you know, the founder of Ashtanga yeah. Yoga. And it was before, you know, anything was really happening at his studio. Like, we could only fit like five to 10 people in the little room. And they were all, you know, I was like 11 with all these sweaty yogis. And I had to get up at four in the morning every day and do a four hour practice. And it was it was an interesting experience um, for, for sure at that age. And, you know, I think yoga is more of a lifestyle than anything else. Like, Mm-hmm. You don't have to twist yourself into a pretzel to be a yogi. And I think that's the you know misconception nowadays. It's like <sighs> yoga is just everywhere and it's such a buzzword. And I think it's about being a loving person. It's about being flexible in life. It's about staying healthy. And, you know, my mom does teacher trainings at our house every June and she trains a lot of the teachers in the world. Um, my dad calls it hot girl month because all these <laughs> – Come, but all these girls come from all over the world and, and live at our um our home here on the on the ocean. And, all and yoga girls yoga. are hot, aren't they? It's like all surfer right? girls. It's so so I've grown up around it, but you kind of got to. I kind of got to rebel against what my my parents do. You know, I can't be the. I, I became the filmmaker instead of the yogi. I think I took up more uh, after my after my papa. But yeah, it's good to have, and she's amazing. Gosh, woof, mm, uh, she blows my mind. I yeah. love that. I, can you tell me a little bit more about your really unusual upbringing? It sounds like you traveled all around the world by the age of probably 12. You'd been a lot of places. And yeah. I've listened to other interviews with you. And one thing that's really interesting is you talk about wanting to go to school <laughs> when, when most kids, all they want to do is ride camels and travel around the world. So maybe tell me a little bit about the places you, you've been to and then this desire to go to school. Isn't that interesting? The first time I actually went to school, I was seven and it was at the base of Mount Everest. (laughs) Um, I'll backtrack. I'll lead you into that. But, um, you know, yes, I was basically that Tarzan child raised around the world when I was about two months old and we were still living in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in a little log cabin. um, My parents decided it was time for my first adventure, family adventure, um, not to Disneyland, but to the highest peak in Southern Peru. And they took me up it and I turned blue. So I have an excuse wow. now. Every time, you know, I do something weird, I can be like, well, it's because my parents <laughs> took me to altitude when I was two months old. And that, you know, after that, my life has just been this wild whirlwind of adventure. We took camels across the Rajasthan desert, dug out canoes down the Amazon, 
uh, trekked across the Himalayas, you know, by the age of seven, I'd been more places than I guess most people may travel to in their entire lives. And the interesting thing was, is that, you know, the grass is always going to be greener. So while I was living the life that, you know, many kids and adults dream of, in my heart and soul, I felt like I was missing out because I would get on the airplane in between countries and I would see Disney movies and I'd see kids having slumber parties and, you know, having little school box lunches and getting on the big yellow school bus. And so, of course, you think you're missing out. And so I begged my parents to go to school. So when I was about seven and we were trekking um, to Mount Everest, I I was so over. I was like, I want to go to school. And they said, okay, go to school. So the next morning I got up with the Sherpa children at like four in the morning. We trekked over an almost 17,000 foot path to go to school, um, like making little fires along the way. Definitely Wait, not what 17, I 17,000 foot path to go to school? Yeah, that's what they do every morning. Not what I had wow. envisioned, right? It's fascinating. <laughs> it was pretty fascinating. I actually made my film Rita. Uh, my very first film about that. So people can check it out. R-I-T-A. Um, it's on my YouTube and my website about my experience uh, with that. Yeah. Pretty wild, huh? That's that's very wild. Allison, I love your films. Um, you're an incredible filmmaker. For those who don't know, if you go to allisonadventures.com, and that's Allison with one L. Allison has been producing a YouTube series for her a little while now, and she has remarkable videos. We're going to talk more about them later. Um, but I want to go back to your childhood because it's so fascinating. So where are some of the most profound places that really have stuck with you today? Um, some of the most memorable places you visited and who are some of the most amazing people you met as a kid? Wow. Ooh, that's a big question. Um, well, let's see. I would say, you know, India is very magical. It has the animals and the smells and the spices. Um, the Himalayas are very rugged and majestic. You know, you're just in awe every minute. You feel very tiny, especially as a little kid. Um, I actually grew up a lot in Bali in Indonesia. And that to me feels like a second home. Um, you know, the monkeys in the monkey forest and eating gado gado. And I was a Balinese dance temple dancer with the little kids. You know, I didn't even know I was Howley or white. I was just kind of going along with the different cultures. Um, I went to Jamaica when I was little. Apparently, I really loved reggae music and I was jamming out. But I, I'm too, I was too young to really remember. And Hawaii, you know, to me is is really special. We call it like two and a half world. It's not really third world and it's not first world. It's kind of this in-between magical place. And I really do uh, love my home. I actually went to France recently and that was unbelievable. I got to speak at the Environmental World Forum and I ate too many chocolate croissants and, no. you know, just getting to experience kind of the non-tribal cultures has been fun for me because I grew up in, in the very primitive cultures. And now uh, it's been fun getting to see, you know, other places. And in terms of uh, how the people that have inspired me, you know, I was I always get good chuckles because people like the shaman from Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that because, you know, the shaman from Eat, Pray, Love and you knew him as a kid, and, and I don't know a woman who hasn't read that book, wanted to jump on a plane to Bali and go meet him, including me. Right. <laughs> he was my painting teacher growing up. Your it just kind of cracks teacher. me up. Wow. Well, that's the thing is that when you grow up with these villages and in these cultures, they're just people to you. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes the shamans are kind of the wildest, craziest people, but they're revered in those cultures because um, they have this you know, sort of sixth sense or way to connect with whatever, uh, you know, whatever I, you can call it spirit vibe, however they, they do it. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. 
to be honest, and, and Elizabeth Gilbert actually talks about this in her book, um, Katutlayer was a very, I would call him a touristy shaman. You know, he'd always come in and sometimes I'd watch him do hand readings because he, he, he would read people's palms and he'd say the same reading for like 25 women. Um, but I imagine after like millions come to visit oh, you, you classic. probably start giving up. But But to answer your question about shamans and incredible people, he's just one of the many I grew up with there. And I've seen you know, this one, wow, this one shaman, I grew up there. He had a plant that could cure cancer. Um, he came up to me and told me I had an extra rib in my neck and it was going to cause me problems. And I was like, what? And then finally in college, it started hurting and I got an x-ray and sure enough, I had an extra rib and, you know, just our friend wanted to get married and couldn't find anyone for years. And he said, okay, I'm going to do this ceremony and you're going to be married next month. And boom, it happened. And, you know, so it's, it's pretty amazing when you grow up around the world, magic becomes just second nature. It's not something that is like wooey wooey or hippy dippy. It's just acknowledged there. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, they live, they live in magic. Can you talk to me more about this idea of magic? I, I really like this. Um, what other instances of magic have you had happen in your life? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, to be honest, magic is what, and, and you could call it magic. You could call it, I like to call it magic. Um, I, I understand. I know it's not woo, but like, but tell me yeah, about it. I think this is an interesting concept. You know, magic is actually what inspired me to make my Allison's Adventure series. Cause when I was flying between cultures and watching those Disney movies on the airplane, you know, I would say to my mom, like, hang on, I know the real Aladdin or, you know, these magical creatures really exist. I've seen them or, you know, like you start to, 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 I would see these things and want to share that these people are really real and I've met them. And for example, speaking of Aladdin, like when I was in Morocco, I was in the market in Marrakesh and I met this man all wrapped in his turban, you know, from the Sahara Desert. And he was a faith healer. And he told me to come over and he said I was going to have a really serious surfing accident if I didn't kiss a live cobra snake. Apparently in their culture, they use cobras for all kinds of things. And so I thought, okay, better safe than sorry. And I kissed this snake and lived through it, luckily. And uh, I had a horrible surfing accident. And I still today do not know how I lived through the accident. Like it was really, I should have probably died. But I made it out alive and all that broke was the fin on my surfboard. And, you know, all I can attribute those kind of things to are, is, is our, uh, the magic around us. Um, and, and I think it's a choice. It's kind of like in Peter Pan, you know, when Tinkerbell is like, you have to believe in it. Um, you kind of have to believe it's there and then it'll start working into your life. And so with my film series, every episode has an element of magic. If you go check it out, you know, from the legend of the firewalkers, that lost island where people can walk on fire. And it, it's just second nature to them. And so I hope to bring that to this culture. That's that's kind of been my mission. You know what I love about your movies? And for those of you listening, Allison has, you went to film school at, at SC, is that correct? Yep, yep. I actually went to UC Berkeley um, at first. And then I, I transferred over to USC film school because I I really wanted to get at it. You know, they say this is the best film school in the world. And it was an incredible film school. But I think, you know, anything in life is what you put into it. And so I went crazy. I was like, I have to make awesome films. And, you know, I was like huge overachiever. I was so excited to share my stories because I had never really I hadn't gotten burnt out with school yet, you know, because I hadn't been to a but lot yeah, of Yeah, this was your first school. So what did you do? I mean, there was SC is like a real college with football teams, sororities. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> funny, actually. Um yeah, if you can imagine, like, homeschool girl goes to 
goes to the college with one of the biggest Greek systems in the world. Um, it was an experience for sure. Um, the film school there, to give you an idea, and this isn't to like toot my own horn, but I was just blown away. I mean, they only accept like 10 to 15, but at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but I graduated, I think in 08, um, 07. And they had only accepted like 15, 10 to 15 students a year. And not many girls, um, obviously are in the film industry. So I was oftentimes the only girl in my class. And it was just incredible to feel like part of this it was kind of a family, you know, we were all this like overachieving, crazy family that wanted to create masterpieces. Um, and it was really fun. But if you can imagine, I'd lived in tents in jungles and suddenly I'm living in downtown Los Angeles. And to me, that was the wildest jungle I'd ever lived in and trying to find, you know, my way around and figure out, you know, what grades were. And if I got an A on a paper, did that mean I was absent or did it mean I'd be calling my mom like, what does this mean? Um, How but did I think you... the true Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think the true testament to a, a lot of people growing up that would meet me were like, well, how is your daughter going to survive? And how is she going to, you know, be educated? And, and what's going to happen with her if you just travel with her and you don't put her through school? And, and again, I'm not bashing, um, you know, the formal education system. I think school is incredibly important, but I think experiential education can be more important if it's not equally important. Like growing up around the world, the world is my classroom. Like if I wanted to learn about India, I'd walk out my back door. And it's not like my parents were slackers and like, oh, you know, don't do homework. They were on it. But it was it was firsthand learning about things firsthand rather than in a classroom setting. So when I went to school, I had this extreme passion to learn and to gain more knowledge. Whereas I think a lot of people get burnt out by then. Um, yeah, and I so think I think right. the yeah. one thing that I... Yeah. And I got into every college I applied to some really big names. And, you know, I think it's just a testament to it doesn't nothing has to be done a certain way to be successful. It's all about good parenting, you know, what you put in, you get out and really just believing in it and, and wanting to do it. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. And what I, what I love about your movies is they really transcend demographics. You know, they're not, they're not these like hipster movies where it only <laughs> appeals to a certain amount of people. I watched a movie you showed at a Patagonia store in Cardiff and the kids, especially the kids love them. You know, is that, is that part of your recipe to make them relatable to kids? <laughs> it's so funny. Everybody goes, what's your audience? And I'm like, everyone. And they're like, well, how can it be everyone? <laughs> and I said, well, why not? Um, you know, again, with Disney movies like Finding Nemo, you see dads and kids and moms and teenagers. And, you know, we, were, we went to see Moana last night and there was every age range in the theater. And I think that's something that Disney has mastered is they kind of magic and good storytelling can touch the heart of anyone. Again, I to answer your question in terms of kids, of course I gear it towards kids because there are future generations and they're the ones that really, I believe, need to be inspired and learn about, you know, plastic pollution or magic or other cultures, especially before these shamans and these cultures disappear. I think that the key to saving our planet and our world is learning the stories that have been passed on, you know, the myths the legends because they have the morals and they have the things that we need to live by and the survival secrets. I mean, that's how I was basically able to survive naked and afraid was from everything I had learned from the stories and the things growing up um, that I got to experience firsthand. So it's fun to inspire the kids because they really get into it and the snakes and the elephants and the tigers. But I try to also make it so that, you know, 
it. Again, my th- my whole thing is humor. Like I always say, the most important thing to pack on an adventure is humor. And that's been a huge thing with my film is if you have humor, people want to learn. If you make something boring, like why would anybody want to learn from that, right? I love that. I honestly think humor is the cure to many things in life. I think that's great advice. And this is a perfect segue because we were just talking about you know, you make these beautiful movies and they're really relatable to kids. I, I watched these little kids' eyes light up when you showed one of your movies at a Patagonia store. It was just awesome. And they all came up to you afterwards. And I think that's that's really refreshing because you're, you're young and you're, you're making, you know, a lot of young people get out of film school and make these really edgy films and you're making them really oh, friendly oh. and it's awesome. So I want to talk about the not-so-kid-friendly show. It's still pretty kid-friendly, but Naked and Afraid. You... <laughs> I, first of all, I mean, you took a show that's supposed to be a little edgy and sexy. You got naked on an island with just one dude, <laughs> which is awesome. And then you used it to spread a bigger message. But I want to talk about all about this. But first, how did you get invited to be on the show Naked and Afraid? How did they find you? Huh, exactly, right? Well, it's it's amazing that they did. And that's another thing I attribute to magic. I was sitting on the lost island of the Firewalkers filming this chief um, my phone was turned Wait, off. Wait, where is this island a, of the f- lost island in, of the Firewalkers? In, uh, in Fiji. It was one of the films I was making. And you um, were in college and, or right out of college? Uh, out of college. Yeah, I was out of college. Okay. And, you know, my my whole dream during college was to get the skills to then set off. I always say with my pink surfboard under one arm, um, my camera under the, the other on top of my camel, which is, you know, just kind of my branding. But I do ride camels a lot and set off across the world to make my education through entertainment film series. And, you know, I was on a mission to inspire the youth, you know, and, and make it kid friendly and do inspirational school tours. And then suddenly I get a call out of the middle of, I'm in the middle of nowhere, literally, I didn't even know my phone could work. And it's discovery channel being like, um, Hey, we are wondering if you want to go to the harshest environment on earth for a month with a man you've never met naked. And I, my jaw dropped like 20 feet and I'm like, I, I was almost offended that they'd even, I, first I thought it was a joke. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. And, uh, I kind of said, thank you very much, but no, thank you. And then over about a year, I kept talking with the producers and it turned out, you know, it's not playboy. We're not doing an MTV, no. you know, real, no, real housewives of, uh, of survival. It was, it was real. And it was like, what if you, what if there was Adam and Eve, um, and they were, there and there was nothing and how would you survive um the concept of the show was supposed to be and 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 became um the most challenging survival show in the history of television they called it the everest of survival challenges where they put a man and a woman alone for almost a month with nothing in the harshest environments on earth and we were the first we were sent to we were the second first or second we were sent to the maldives um, we were right on the equator on this tiny little island. It was like 122 degrees when we got off the boat and yeah, we had to survive. And it just, it took absolutely everything <laughs> that I possibly had in me, but I think I learned more from it than anything else I've ever done. How many days were you actually on the island? 22. Wow. 22 days on an island. Did the other guy mm-hmm. stay 22 days as well? Uh, um, Yes, he did. He had a hard time. He got really sunburnt um, in the beginning. And 
I don't know if he was, you know, there's different kind of survival. He was a guys who get sunburned are so cranky. I can (laughs) don't need to say anymore. Yeah. Yeah. He was a recon Marine and here I was, you know, like doing my, my, uh, traditional primitive survival and um, I kind of had to keep him alive and myself and we didn't eat god we didn't eat for like 16 days I don't think but you know it really showed me I would say what a human has in them like a testament to you know like people say if something falls on their child and they they do an inhuman thing where they're able to lift off a heavy car and they don't know how they did it it's kind of like if we're faced with this big of a challenge we can overcome it even if we don't know or think that we can, if that makes sense. And to boot, I realized how much I knew because I'd never taken a survival course in my life. But like I said, growing up in these cultures and learning how to weave coconut hats in Hawaii or how to, you know, certain styles of catching fish, you know, in Indonesia or making shelters or different things I learned from my dad on sustainability. And you kind of just my whole life has been survival like 101. So it was it was an ode to my parents, an honor to them, you know, to show that they had, quote, raised me right and successful in, in their eyes. It was a real coming of age um, in the Native American cultures. In many cultures, they send young people out on vision quests. And I think that's so important. I don't think you need to go naked on an island and starve, but just, you know, have that vision quest where yeah. you push yourself to the limits and get to learn things um, about yourself is pretty important. And a lot of health. Yeah, it was, it was wild. How did you prepare for the show? I mean, did you meet at all with like any Hawaiian elders or do anything? You know, it's, it's funny you ask. I actually made a whole film about it. Um, It's called wild child. Okay. That's where I got that from. I watched that film. Um, Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I had about a week to prepare when they told me where I was going because I could have gone anywhere. You know, they they don't they purposely kind of don't tell you your location and survival is dependent on place. So if you're in the Himalayas versus the tropics, it's a completely different thing. And, you know, it took cavemen and, and people back then hundreds of years, thousands of years to just to form tools, let alone actually eat and survive. So, you know, you're you're compressing history into a ridiculously short amount of time and trying to survive. So I went around to all the elders I could find in the community in Hawaii, asking them, you know, their stories from ancient times about fish hooks and fishing and what kind of plants and you know anything I could eat, what I should do. Um, and it, a lot of it comes down to mindset. One of my Samoan friends is just so loving and smiles all the time. He calls me pumpkin granola and he goes, pumpkin granola, you're going to be fine. Just, you know, just keep a smile on your face and, and keep that humor and that'll keep you alive. And that's, that's, I think that's what kept me alive. I, there's, there's four things in survival. So there's shelter, fire, food, and water. They say shelter is the most important and clothing is your number one shelter. So we were stripped of absolutely everything. And I've added a fifth element, which I think is humor. And I think that that, um, with those five things, you know, you can, you can survive pretty much anything. It's so funny. I just interviewed a survival expert the last episode and, um, yeah. Um, so it's so interesting what you're talking about, but humor is so underrated. And I think what's so interesting is you talk about your clothing as shelter. Now you can weave a skirt or a hat out of just a palm leaf. How do you do that? How did you learn that? Talk to me about that. I'll have to show you when you come here. Okay. Well, I guess. Uh, You'll have to to come over. Um, You know, just 
Well, first of all, our thatched roofs on our house in Hawaii were all made from palm leaves. So I would sit there as a kid and help. Uh, we had this group living here from Tonga and they helped us weave. Our house looked like this big basket on the inside when you'd look up. And it, it's all kind of the same weaving pattern that make the blankets and the baskets. And and uh, my friend Coconut Pete, who lives on the island here, he's a hoot. If you ever visit the South Kona Farmer's Market and ask for Coconut Pete, you can he'll make you a hat, open you a coconut. He's a kick. But, you know, drawing on the people from our lives. And that's what I would say for anyone what, you know, wants to accomplish something. It's like people do want to help you. And I think that show taught me a lot about like asking for help and going to elders and going to friends. And it, it not only proved to me what I had in me, but also the people that were there for me. And it kind of like created this whole community I never even knew I had. Um, so that's become really special. So is, is, if you had to go back, is there anything you would have done differently with that show? snuck some peanut butter in my <laughs> in my uh, <laughs> in my hair licked it out um you know I, no i don't think there's anything that i would have done differently i think if i would have n- known ahead of time what i was going into i would have never done it they've called me multiple <laughs> times afterwards to do more shows like they have a 45 day one now and i'm like no i'm i'm, I'm done with yeah you're you're you good know, <laughs> Naked survival. I'm good. Um, but you know, what I did learn is a lot about health. Like for example, I would always get staph infections really easily when mm-hmm. I go to tropical climate surfing. Like if I cut myself, it would immediately um turn into staph. And I'd always be like, Oh, why? I'm so healthy and I'd clean it right. And I was just terrified that when I go to this tropical location, I mean, I was getting so cut up on the reef every day trying to get food or eels or snails or everything. And I would just look like a roadmap on the back of my leg of of cuts. And they would heal almost instantly. And it was freaking me out. I was like, what is going on? There must be something in the water here. because you were fasting? Well, I wouldn't say fasting. Well, we were, yeah. But I would say a lack of sugar in my diet mm. because staff mm. likes to live on sugar, um, to my understanding. And you know, yeah, we had some coconuts and coconut sugar, you know, within the coconuts. Mm -hmm. But the lack when I came back and went to the doctor, although I was, you know, emaciated and lost like 20 pounds, and it was pretty gnarly, he lost like 40. I was healthier than they said they'd seen most people. Um, But what I would say is fasting, I don't think is good for you. I think just having a diet that is clean, you know, clean of sugars, clean of processed foods. Um, I don't think starving yourself is the answer. I've had friends go back and do the second naked and afraid and they were losing hair. Oof. They've gone through horrible weight things. You don't want to do that to your body at mm-hmm. all. And that's why I don't I don't want to do any more um, extreme survival like that. I don't think it's healthy, but it did teach me some interesting things. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I, I actually think fasting from sugars or, you know, from processed food is really healthy and I've had some experience with it. Um, so did you have any like PTSD after that? Cause that's, that's pretty huh. gnarly experience on the show. My episode was called the Island from hell. I speared this eel, which ended up keeping us alive. And in terms of post-traumatic stress, when I got home, I'd say it was the second night I was back. The first night I couldn't even figure out like which way it was up or down. Like sleeping in a bed was the strangest thing in the world. Um, but my ma- my mom found me on the kitchen floor in the middle of the night asleep trying to spear an eel and she kind of tackled me and was like what are you doing and I'm like I gotta get us an eel we're starving and she's like you're home and I'm like oh my gosh um it was pretty wild and the other thing that was kind of trippy is 
while we are on the show, your senses get really heightened because you're so hungry. And even though Discovery did an incredible job with the crew, like they didn't eat in front of us or anything, they would have this trail mix in their backpack and I could smell it um, when they were in here. I know. And uh, so when I got back, I went and made trail mix and I slept with it under my pillow for like maybe two weeks just because I was so terrified that I would be, you know, without food. And it does come up sometimes for me still. Like I had a really hard time surfing in cold water. I would get paranoid and think that I wasn't going to get warm because even though it was the warmest place probably on earth, um, we had monsoon season come through and they said they'd had some of the worst storms the Maldives had ever seen, if not the worst. And we had to survive that with nothing on us and the rains and the winds. And we were, um, almost hypothermic and it was so scary and so cold. And I just never want to, I, I wasn't that cold in the Himalayas. So, you know, I don't, I wow. don't ever want to be that cold again. Yeah. It was crazy. What I love about this show is afterwards you use it as you use it as a platform, but, but I love how you used it as a platform because so many people do these <laughs> shows and then they go on dancing with the stars and then they do these like celebrity parties where they get paid money to show up. And, and you went and you're yeah. like, I'm going to use my fame to go tell the world about a cause in the Maldives, which was plastic pollution. And then I recently mm -hmm. read that you helped get the plastic ban, the plastic ban uh, act passed in California. So I wanted to thank you for that personally, because I'm a California resident. I know, uh, right? Appreciate the it. help in the California. I love it. <laughs> I think you had some California in you. So tell me a little bit about what you did after this show and then the movie you made about plastic pollution, because most of the audience might not know about it. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because every day waking up on that island when I was surviving, uh, there'd be water bottles, plastic water bottles and other plastic items floating in and styrofoam uh, from all over the world with labels from Australia and China and America and the Maldives and Indonesia, you name it. And I was like, well, that's kind of odd. Um, and so as the month went on, um, it became pretty catastrophic to watch it. And then I found out afterwards that it had taken like two villages a week to clean a tiny little island that we were on. And it was still covered in plastic. Wow. And once you experience something like that, um, it just kind of blew my mind. And then I learned that the Maldives is, you know, home of Trash Island, which uh, nobody's ever really filmed or captured in, until I came along. There were some some pictures. I think some journalists tried to go in there, um, but I I wanted to see what what it was, what that meant. It's kind of this mystique uh, thing, and not to mention the Maldives is the lowest lying country on Earth. So, w in terms of climate change, um, they're going underwater, and if they go underwater, all that plastic will be underwater. And it's one of the biggest tuna fisheries. It's going straight into the tuna. It's not a great thing. So I came back and started kind of doing my research. And um, the woman that owned the island that we did Naked and Afraid on, she's a Maldivian woman. She's incredible, uh, very fiery, you know, uh, they're, they're Islamic there, right? So here I am doing a naked show in an Islamic country, first of all, which was so bizarre to me. So I wanted wow. to come back and make a difference, you know, mm -hmm. not just take from survival's the earth provides our survival. And I thought, well, how can I give back to the earth for providing me um, with life? Because we could have easily died that month. And I'm not being melodramatic. Like this was an experiment. Discovery never tried something like this. And I got so loopy at times that I probably could have died if it, you know, I stepped off the wrong rock or climbed the wrong coconut tree. Um, I'm just really lucky. So what I did is I gathered uh, a team, meaning me and, and Sarah Lee, who does uh, my incredible photography, and um, Mark Tipple, 
who's a cinematographer out of Australia. And we marched back to the Maldives and we were hosted by Shahina, the local woman there who's a powerhouse. She's amazing. And I made a film and it was called one man's, uh, Trash is another woman's bikini, and basically, it's 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 kitty. It has the Disney flair because I want to make it appealing to all ages. Um, but it's really fun, and it it all of a sudden just skyrocketed through the roof. I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, I had a granola bar and a coconut, and no budget, and I went to Trash Island. We went all over. We documented what's happening there, and so before wait, I knew really, it, it was- what is Trash Island and what is happening there? Can you tell people about um, it just a little bit? Well, it's not this, quote, floating island in the middle of the Pacific that everybody talks about. So to to make um, that all clear, there's the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which, uh, contrary to popular belief, is not just this floating island of plastic. It's like microplastics, like very small pieces that just cover this great area of ocean. And that's why it's not really clean upable because it's at all levels of the sea. It's not like you can just scoop it off the top. So that's really gnarly because that's what's happening when this plastic breaks down. It's creating these gyres like that or or the gyres of current are creating the plastic to be in those areas. Um, So what is happening in the Maldives is similar. There's microplastics, but there's also a lot of big plastics because of the currents. And they flow there from all over the world. And Trash Island is... Um, it's actually like a landfill island, basically, where all of our plastic kind of comes to die. So any boats that are going from the resorts, because it's a you know big resort destination, um, everything comes and is dumped there or is brought there by ocean currents from bottles coming from all over the world. And it's 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 crazy. It's like the apocalypse. Like you should check it out. Um, it's the first movie on my homepage at Allison's Adventures. Okay, um, and it's mine. We're going to put that up in the show notes. Um, what's the movie called again? Uh, well, it's Allison's Adventures Maldives. Uh, one one man's trash is another woman's bikini, and it's called that because I made a bikini out of the plastic bottles. At that point, I was, you know, <laughs> heck bent on uh, making this plastic into something so that it wouldn't break down and get into the food chain of fish and such. I don't think that's necessarily the answer now. I think we just need to stop plastic instead of trying to turn it into other things. Um, it just really needs to go away. <laughs> it, it, it should not be around. But uh, it was just, you know, what was incredible, Shelby, is that I just had a dream. I didn't have any money. I didn't have, I didn't really even know. I was just like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. I didn't even know, really know what I was getting myself into, but I had a passion and a dream. And before I knew it, it was like front of Yahoo and CNN and Ellen was calling and Oprah. And I mean, it was, it was like something I'd never, ever thought I would experience. And so I, I start going on all these talk shows, you know, and and all they want to talk about is naked and afraid. And did you have sex with the guy and all this? And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, how can I make plastic pollution just as important as naked people on TV? And that has kind of become my mission. That's yeah, it's really crazy. cool. And that is definitely a wild idea that you lived out. Kudos mm-hmm. to you. I mean, has there ever been any doubts? I mean, making a movie like that is really daunting. Going on a show like Naked and Afraid, daunting. Mm-hmm. How do you get over fear and self-doubt or insecurity. I mean, I think you're probably a remarkable woman and maybe you don't have as much as that as other other humans, but everybody experiences some level of that. You know, I have self-doubt every day. I don't really have self-doubt. That's not the right way to put it. I have doubt. I don't doubt myself because I know that 
I can accomplish things. You know, I think mm-hmm. once you accomplish, you got you got to do baby steps. So you accomplish one thing and you go, okay, I did it. And you get a little more confidence and you accomplish another thing. You go, okay, I did it. Um, so you, if you want to do something, you just kind of have to take baby steps. And I've taken the baby steps to know that I can accomplish things. It's more like just doubt in general because there's so many moving parts in this world. It's like, how can you ever know what's going to happen today and tomorrow? So you truly just, you have to believe in yourself and fear really can fog that. And I, I just think you have to do everything you can do to push fear out of your mind. And what I try to think about is every single person in this world, as far as I know, has insecurities, right? Yep. You have insecurities. I have insecurities. Every, so we're all, we all have insecurities. So everybody is going to, do you know what I mean? Like nobody's perfect. So go out and do what you do because no matter what, if you don't try it, if you don't jump, you're never going to try it. You never can succeed. Yeah. I love and if that. You do, and you could, you know, you you just got to try it a lot and maybe of, it won't, but it'll open doors. I guarantee that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the girl, the, one of the first women I interviewed really talks about starting lines and she's like, the biggest, the biggest thing is you have to start starting lines are more important than finish lines. And, um, uh, yeah, I also love this saying that the best adventures aren't always easy. Um, you've created mm-hmm. really your own job, your own path out of absolute thin air. And a lot yeah. of people ask, how do you support what you do? Um, can you can you kind of talk about the financial side of it? And I, I also want you to talk about the idea of a trust fund because I heard you talk about that before and I yeah, just love I'm it. Just gonna start, that's funny. I was going to start with that. Um, well, to be perfectly clear, because I think a lot of people see my life and traveling the world and you've done this and that. I don't have money. I never have my, you know, we, we grew up like I said, on a coconut and a granola bar and it was making ends meet and my parents trying to figure out, you know, how to live life of adventure and their dreams. And they created this, this thing where people would always ask, you know, my gosh, how do you guys do it? And they'd say, oh, we have a trust fund. And people kind of look at them funny and they say, yeah, yeah, we just trust that the funds are going to be there. And I just think that's great. You have to trust that the funds will be there. And a lot of people say, well, okay, but I still don't have the money. And there comes a point where you kind of have to look at your life and say, what do I really need? And I think at our culture, we've reached this time where everybody's just like, I need more money. And they're, they're reaching and they're reaching, but it's not making them happy. It's just making them have more stress and need more. The more you have, the more you need. So you know, what I do is I, I grew up in trade. Okay. I'm letting you in on my secrets here. Um, I grew up in, in trade societies, right? So you give me a bushel of potatoes and, you know, I'll give you a coconut or <laughs> however that, that works. And so I don't believe life has to be dependent on money. I believe that everybody has a talent and something to offer. Um, so see where that can get you. Like, for example, let's say, okay, you're a writer, right? Yep. And I'm an adventurer. So maybe we co-collab and you're writing and I'm just making this up, but you're writing in my adventure and neither of us are paying each other, but we're helping each other. And I get your writing in Oprah and you get me in National Geographic. I'm, I'm just making this up on the fly, but there's ways where if you talk to people and you make friends and you have a community and, and you're a kind person, you know, that's how I survived growing up in tribes as we were. And this wasn't about using each other. This was about like loving me like I would always talk to people in airports and you know you 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 kind of create a community wherever you go that support each other um and that was really incredible skills I think for me now 
because it's all about what you can create out of nothing. You know, call, call 20 people, you know, ask them for advice, ask them if you want to do X, you know, how do you get to that X? What, who do you have to call? What do you have to do? Because I don't think money makes things possible. I think it's passion, a hundred percent passion. I love that. I love the trust fund idea. I think it's beautiful. And, and you also said something really important that love and giving love, you kind of get love as well. Um, yeah, it reciprocates. And, and you, you'd be surprised if you take one little step towards something you want to do and you don't have money and you trust and you just go, okay, this is going to work. You, I think you might be surprised. It'll come back. I want to talk about surfing because surfing is a sport that's really near and dear to a lot of listeners on this show. And you're a big surfer. So tell me what about that sport has lured you in and tell me a little bit about your pink surfboards because they're beautiful. <laughs> and, and we got to give a shout out to Matt Bielos and all your other shapers because I've seen some of your surfboards and they're great. So tell me, I know. Tell me rad, about the sport. Right? Yeah, they're amazing. They're it's beautiful. been so fun. Well, it's been fun shaping down, you know, shaping. It's been fun painting down with uh, Matt and his daughters at Lost because Ryder's just an incredible artist. And, you know, he's um, gotten on the bandwagon to help protect the earth. And so the boards are made out of recycled coffee cups and plant resin. And, you know, it, it's just wild that the whole world and industries are changing. And I love that people are taking heed that we need to do good things for our planet. Um, wow, I didn't know that. So the lost surfboards are actually made out of eco-friendly material. And then they're painted by his daughter, who's young. Well, not all lost surfboards are. Mine are. You can get them that way. His daughter was, I think, five when she first did my surfboard. So you'll see the fun like palm trees or flowers. And it's just so fun. I love collaborating with kids and, and getting their message and helping them get their talents out there. It's super fun. That's cool. So, um, so why surfing? Tell me about the sport for you. <laughs> well, I've never competed. I'm not a competitor. I do have a passion for big waves. Not like those crazy, you know, mavericks. Uh, oh, well, I bow down to people who can do that. But I just love to go, you know, to the remote corners of the world and find fun waves to surf. To me, the ocean, growing up, like I always say, the world was my classroom and the ocean was my playground. And surfing is my meditation, my love, my inspiration. And I do, I carry this pink surfboard around, even when there is no ocean, because to me, I think water and ocean is our future. Um, it's essential, it's essential for survival. And it is essential for my survival every day. Um, and it's, it's what there is the most of in your body, in the world. And I just think protecting our waters is really important, whether it's from plastic pollution or, or any sort of pollution. And so a pink surfboard to me symbolizes uh, protecting our waters. And it also is for passion and pink. And I always say, you know, a smile and a pink surfboard can open any door. <laughs> so when you rock a village, you know, and you're like, aloha, and you have a pink bikini and a pink surfboard, uh, it's it's pretty incredible what can happen and the relationships that you can form. I just went to France and I took my pink surfboard in the scene river under the Eiffel Tower. And it was like, you know, comical. Um, but I like to make statements that we need to protect our waters. And so that's a lot of what Alison's Adventures has become about. Um, why, were, why were you in France? I know you were, you were there to speak uh, at a climate summit. Is that correct? Yeah, the World Environmental Forum um, on protecting our oceans. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a trip, Shelby, because I grew up, you know, in the jungles and to me, nature was everything and, and our lives depended upon it. And then as I grew up and realized um, kind of how much we're destroying it, it's like come full circle where 
I didn't do these things to be on Oprah or be on Ellen or speak at summits. I kind of just started sharing my stories and now I'm just so honored that people are watching them and taking heed and, you know, suddenly a Hawaiian uh, hula girl with inspiration is with all these scientists, you know, I'm here, I am in France with like the biggest environmental people in the world on these massive stages with hundreds and thousands of people watching. And it's just, it's very cool to be able to share my story and make a footprint um, or, or encourage people not to make a footprint in the world. Um, and, and so yeah, it's wild. That's what that's what I was there for. So it's fun. I love now, like you said, you saw me speaking at Patagonia and helping to ban the plastic bag in California by paddling through Biona Creek after the rain when all that plastic was out there. And, you know, just doing my part. I think we have to dive in and do our part. We can't wait around for there. Of course, government helps and all that. But it, every single person can make a difference every day by like refusing a single use plastic or turning off a light or saving water or just giving someone a hug. <laughs> yeah, giving giving someone a hug is is actually really powerful. But you, you said you just paddled through this creek, but it was a filthy, nasty creek and you did it for a message. Um, so for the audience who, who doesn't know what that is, that's, that's what Allison's referring to. And I'm guessing you have awesome video footage of that on your website. Yeah, I do. I, I, it's recent on my blog. Also, if you go to one of my last Facebook videos, I'm just I'm blown away. It went to like a couple million views in a day. Um, I was contacted by my friends from Surfrider, uh, Tina Segura and Michael Courtney in Los Angeles. And, you know, she goes, hey, Allison, you got your pink surfboard? I'm like, of course I do. And I get there and it's they call it the first flush. So it's like the big first rain in L.A. where you know, everything from the water sources throughout the city are brought together into the creek and then go into the ocean. And um, we thought, well, to make a statement, I would paddle through it. Um, and then I got there and I was like, hey, no, I'm not paddling through that. So I took my paddleboard so I didn't have to actually get in the water because it was pretty nasty and paddled through it and threw it up on Facebook as like a, you know, hey, let's ban the bag and let's not use plastic shopping bags during Christmas and, you know, a whole smorgasbord of let's protect our earth. And it went so viral. And then CNN just contacted me and I was just headline CNN news from my grass shack in Hawaii. I'm um, talking about Indiana Jones, the female Indiana Jones saves our planet. It's just, it was so funny. Um, so I'm just, I feel blessed to have that voice now. And, and I think, you know, I have to thank naked and afraid and, and just I, having this platform to just now be a voice. And I think that would be my inspiration to people is, you know, go big or go home. Like you kind of get one life, right? So what can you do in this world to give back and to focus out? Because the more you focus out, the happier you'll be inside. I know a lot of people think like, oh, if I'm selfish, I'm going to be happy. Or if I focus on me, that's going to make me happy. And uh, it doesn't really work that way. I've found it's, it's better to, um, yeah, see what you can do for the world and for each other. I love that. I was just going to ask you kind of advice questions. Um, but I, I actually do want to kind of go into a little bit more advice. If you could go back in time and tell your 15-year-old self one thing, what would you tell her? <laughs> this is so funny. It's it, it, This just came into my head uh, when you said that. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm a storyteller, right? I believe stories are the most important way to pass on information. I'll tell you a real quick story. When I went to high school for the very first time, I went to a little bit of high school in Aspen, Colorado, if you can imagine. Like, you know, you think of Aspen, Colorado, it's about the most different from homeschooling in a jungle you can imagine. 
Um, and there was a dance team. They didn't have cheerleaders, but they had this dance team. And I really, you know, I danced around the world. I was a Balinese dancer and a hula dancer. And I, I wanted to be on this dance team. So they held auditions. And, <laughs> um, and it was everyone from the school, the principals, the dance squad, the football player, you know, the basketball yeah. player. Everybody was there to watch these auditions. So here comes Allison, right, in a grass skirt and coconut shells. I come out to do my audition and most girls, you know, they were doing a Miley Cyrus takeoff dance or like Beyonce and they do their 15 seconds of twerking and they leave and then they either get cast <laughs> the troupe or they don't. So I come out there in my coconut shells, my grass skirt, I do a Hawaiian chant and then I do a hula and everyone was like silent. I don't even think they knew what to think. And I kind of just, I got like so embarrassed because it was suddenly like, you know, Adam and Eve realizing they were naked. Like I had never thought that anything I did was unnormal. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh. And it kind of set me back a bit. And thinking back to that, because I was probably about 14, 15. Oh, that's a rough I age wish for a young just, girl. Yeah. Totally. And I wish I would have just owned it. Oh, I was so like that movie Mean Girls. That was totally me. I was the homeschool girl, you know, that came in and didn't even know what a school bus was. And um, I think that I, I wish... I would just, you know, my advice would be to own it, own every, because if you own it, people are like, oh, wow, okay, cool. It's, it's <laughs> so amazing true. what, what you can do if you own it rather than like, oh shoot, maybe I'm not normal and, you know, but it's funny because flash forward, you know, a million years to Naked and Afraid, not a million, flash forward to my uh, stent on Naked and Afraid and those coconut shells and grass skirt and everything kept me alive. And it kind of, I, I always think about that day where it's like, at the time I felt weird, but you know, I'm so glad I stuck with my roots because it's kept me alive through many situations. I love that advice. And I love that story. I can just see you now. And, and you know, you're not, you're, you're like Lindsay Lohan in the movie, but you're not like Lindsay Lohan. You, you don't drink, you don't really party. You're a pretty good kid. Uh, good, clean living. You know, yeah, that's something else I would advise. Um, I don't have judgment for people who drink or smoke or, you know, I think every man to themselves, but my advice would be everybody always trips out and they're like, how do these things just happen for you? How do they manifest? And I'm like, well, my, one of my little secrets is, is I've never drank. And to me, I think that drinking, I think there's this pipeline. You can call it a pipeline to God, to the universe, to spirit, to your guardian angel, um, to a coconut in the sky. I don't know, but there's a pipeline. And when you, I feel like when you drink and you do mind altering substances, it clogs that pipeline. And that's your kind of pipeline of manifestation, um, I mean, I also think that I want to be healthy, healthy, and I don't, I don't really want that kind of thing in my body. And it also drains your pocketbook. Let me tell you, travel. People are always like, "How do you travel?" And uh, if you want a, a cheaper way to travel, um, don't drink. But you know, I can't tell you not to. I know it's every man for themselves, but that's been my experience: is that it goes beyond the physical and more into the spiritual. Of I, I just think that it can prevent you manifesting your dreams. I, I love that. I think that's really important and great advice, especially to young people um, and old people, really. Do you have any routines? And I, go ahead. I don't feel bad. And own it. Don't feel bad. Yep. Like people are always like, oh my God, what are you on? And I'm like, I'm high on life. And they're like, oh, I wish I could have that. I'm like, you could. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any routines you stick to every day? Like ways you eat, meditation, things you do every day? Surfing. Um, it's funny you ask. I'm actually the non, I believe in almost like non-routine. Uh, I think 
kind of hearkening back to we were all, God, I'm going to get really deep on you now. I think we were, you know, nomads to begin with. And so we were always moving and, and people often feel stuck because yeah, well, we're supposed to be moving and doing different things and seeing different things and moving to different watering holes and finding different animals and building different shelters. And I think that's the way to keep your brain active and to keep your body going and to keep yourself alive. I'm not suggesting you sleep in a different place every night. That does get exhausting. Um, but you know, just keep, keep moving in terms of, I guess there's things I do without even knowing it. Like I definitely eat healthy. Um, and I definitely surf as much as I can every day if, or twice a day. If I, if I can uh, ski snowboard, you know, I think staying active is incredibly important. Um, the ocean to me is just kind of my, my, my happy place, so to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know in terms of I'm trying to think of straight off. I guess I just do it automatically. I think sleep is a is a huge important one. Um, I'm not like a huge late night rager. <laughs> um, yeah, sleep, dance, dance, and laughter. I love that humor. Yeah, laughter. What? Sh- shake it up. Shake it up. Shift it up. Yeah. Twerk it up and hula dance. Um, what's the best gift you've ever been gifted? Mm, chocolate. I love dark chocolate. Um. <laughs> You know, I always say the world. I think my parents literally gave me the world. Um, they tried to give me a upbringing and an experience that was very, very different than most. And they trusted themselves in it when everybody said they were probably kind of kooky. Um, so I think that's what I have been gifted is not just that life, but it's almost given me this like different perspective on the world in a sense that. You know, of course, I go to like a metaphysical thing because I physical things don't really like gifts. Of course, I love gifts. Everybody loves gifts, but like I love the gifts that are that are love and that are um, that are intangible. Yeah, that are intangible. That are adventure. Uh, that's kind of what's what's special to me. So I have to kind of thank them for giving me the world. Your parents sound incredible, Allison, and you've had an incredible life and you've, you've been doing amazing things with it. So thank you so much for sharing with all of us. This is just a great interview. I'm really enjoying it. I have to ask you just two more questions. What books do you love or recommend to people out there? (laughs) This is so funny that you ask me this. Um, It's just classic because I was thinking, I was like, I should read. I have not been reading in so long because I've been writing. Um, I've actually been writing my own book, which is, uh, it's funny when you think of book, you're like, oh, am I going to read or am I going to write? I'm like, okay, I'm going to write. Um, so I'm working on that. But, you know, growing up when I was really little, I would read a lot. And I think reading when you're young is essential. And then as I grew up, what I started to realize is many of the cultures that I grew up in, it was like I said, based on the stories that were verbal. And what I find is like if I go on an airplane or if I go somewhere, instead of bringing a book, I like to learn people's stories. And I know that doesn't really answer your question, but I'm not a huge reader and not because I don't like to read or I don't think it's important, but I kind of like to keep my senses up and learn the stories that are around me because I think that kind of keeps the community and the cycle of life going. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. You know, every, everybody's different. Um, and I love talking to people randomly in the grocery store or on a plane. My parents used to invite the guys who bagged our groceries or they, they met at the gym everywhere um, to Thanksgiving dinner. So I grew up in a family like that too, where you just talk to everybody. Um, 
which is why I'm doing a podcast so I can talk more. Uh, I love talking to people. I love hearing stories of people who have lived wildly, gone after their dreams and made it happen despite any kind of limits. And I just have to ask you, it sounds like you've got a book in the works, which is really exciting. I know you're doing retreats for men and women and possibly people of all ages at your beautiful house in Hawaii that we're going to come visit. What else is next in your life and where can people find out more? Oh my goodness. Well, I never know where I'm going to be tomorrow, (laughs) but uh, yeah, finishing up uh, this book and also I just got back from Fiji, so I'm working on a series. You're going to crack up, but I took this globe, like a, you know, like a school globe, a world, and I took it all over. And I'm doing, you know, I put it in plastic. I jumped on it. I gave it to people of different cultures. And I'm doing a series of, you know, we have the world in our hands, and it's kind of up to us Aww. now like what that. we do with it. So that'll be kind of fun. Um, and yeah, you can watch everything. Uh, on my Facebook, on my Instagram, I guess you could say I have a YouTube series. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm not really out to become a YouTube star, but my whole idea with YouTube is that I want a vehicle where everyone around the world can watch it for free, like share it in schools or share it with their family. And that seems to be the best vehicle as of now. Um, also like Facebook, um, the biggest ones, the most prominent films I've done are on my website, Allison's Adventures, Allison's Adventures with, uh, one L and the S and then the S again. Uh, yeah, come put, check them out. I'm going to put all of these on the show notes. Um, but I actually have to go back and ask you one more question. And this is something I'm struggling with too. You know, you're an adventurer, but you also do videos and films. And a lot of the things that you do requires a bit of computer time and technical time. So <laughs> you're this like adventurous outdoor girl, but you have to be a little bit connected to a computer. So can you just talk a little bit about this duality between these worlds and what your creative process is like and how you deal with it. That's so funny. You just said that. Cause I was literally just checking like, is my coconut Wi-Fi still working? Um, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere here. You cut uh, out like a couple times, but it's been pretty good. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, yeah. Well, Number one, you would be surprised where there is Wi-Fi. Like I've had better Wi-Fi under a coconut tree with a donkey in Mexico than I have in downtown Los Angeles. Like it's a trip where there is Wi-Fi nowadays, which is kind of a blessing and a curse because it doesn't really allow you to disconnect (laughs) very often because you are always on it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it is a it's definitely a struggle for everyone. I try to balance it. And, you know, part of me is like, why the heck am I creating something where people have to be on the computer more to watch it? But what really changed my mind is I went on a school tour in Philadelphia one day. And this little girl came up to me afterward, and she was sobbing, she had watched one of my films. And I was like, Oh, and she goes, you know, Allison, (laughs) she was so cute. She had these little pigtails, like, so tiny. And she goes, Allison, you know, before I saw your film, I thought I had nothing to live for. Um, and, and my mom is, is dying of cancer. And and now that I've seen your films, I know that there's magic in the world and there's people that'll be my friend. And I was like, wow, you know, this little girl would have never seen any of this if it wasn't for the computer and for the series. So you have to kind of take that approach of who can you reach with all this? And in terms of the personal, like how do I balance my own life in editing? Like I do all the editing. Um, I do everything pretty much for it. It's incredible to have people like Sarah, you know, creating photos and, and footage that um, I can use, but it's a ton of work. And my only answer to that is like, you have to do it. And it's a lot and you have to commit to it and you have to work. I mean, I went in 
in a hole literally for six months when I did my lost mile into the island of the firewalkers. And I was, my mom says it's like having a dog all of a sudden where she'll put like food under my door. Uh, cause I did a lot of these movies when I was like younger, right out of college. And so that, you know, the, I was still at home and they were helping me. I'm actually at home right now, but, um, we're, we're pretty close, but you know, you have to, you just have to have those times. And so it's the times of adventure. And then it's the times of balance where you come home and you work on it and you got to work hard. I mean, I don't know if you have any questions specifically, like I definitely get. That's it. I mean, I have a friend who's sailing to French Polynesia and he has a YouTube video series that he's creating to do just kind of similar things you're doing. And, and he said something similar. I mean, now he's able to reach so many people and have this conversation on a much bigger level than he'd ever be able to do. Does he like staring at his computer? No, but he's doing it in a beautiful place and it's for a greater good. Exactly. You just kind of have to keep that in your mind and start to think of it as not (sighs) try to think of it as not a bad thing and to get off of it, you know, as much as you can, which it's, it's always a struggle, but that's why surfing and everything where you, you have to be in the ocean. Luckily they're not too waterproof yet. (laughs) Allison, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you're an incredibly talented woman. You've done so much for the world. I love your humorous, fun, playful, positive approach to life. It's really refreshing. For the audience listening, I'll have everything in the show notes, but please check out allisonadventures.com, 1L and Allison. And with that, I'll leave you with a giant aloha, mahalo. Thank you, Allison. You're beautiful to interview with. Oh, mahalo. Thank you. We'll see you in the island soon, I'm sure, for a board meeting. That sounds great. So thank you, audience, and we will check you out next week. Bye. Wow. What a great storyteller. I know that was a long one, but folks, I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Allison. What I love about her is she really lives with this just pink, bright passion. And she's all about making the world a better place one step at a time. Plus, I loved the fact that there are birds in the background of that interview. Just sort of made me want to book a flight to Hawaii like tomorrow. Anyways, I'll have more info with links to items Allison and I spoke about in the show notes. Just go to wildideasworthliving.com, go to the podcast section, click on Allison's show, and you can find out all that information, links on how to find her as well. She's got incredible information on her website, tons of interesting episodes and videos. Next week, we have best-selling author and underwater breathing expert, James Nestor. James has a great story about ditching the nine to five to become a writer, which a lot of people ask me, hey, Shelby, how did you quit your job to become a writer? Well, James did it and he did it and he's a best-selling author and his books are becoming movies and he talks about exploring the depths of the sea, his writing process, and we're going to also talk to him about his new venture into the world of breathing. It's a good episode. So stay tuned for next week. Don't forget to go to wildideasworthliving.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. I really appreciate all of your support and love. And don't forget, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest idea. We'll see you next week. 